Hear now the word of God. The next day, he, that is John, saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is he of whom I said, After me comes a man who ranks before me because he was before me. I myself did not know him, but for this purpose I came baptizing with water that he might be revealed to Israel. And John bore witness. I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove, and it remained on him. I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, He on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and have borne witness that this is the Son of God. Thus ends the reading of God's holy, inspired, and inerrant word. May he lay its eternal truths on our hearts this morning. Let's ask him to do that together. Lord, would you open our eyes to your son this morning? Would you send the Spirit to help us to see what the Scriptures say and to understand in a fuller way what your son is like and how we can live to please you? Help us this morning, we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. I wonder what most of us think of when we think of sermon application. Um, a lot of times, I think the, the, the notion that comes to our minds, at least when we think of sermon application, is, well, now you've heard the, the body of the text, here are ten ways to have a better marriage, or here are ten ways to, to do this, or to apply this, or to do that. And so we end up thinking of application as being something that is strictly action-based. We think, here's what I need to do now that I know what God has done. And, and sometimes I think our idea of application is a little narrow, if that's how we think of it. Because uh, I recall years ago now, I don't even remember when he said it, but John Piper was talking about preaching. And he said, basically, sometimes you have a passage where the application of the passage is not a list of things to do, but the application is simply, behold your God. And I would suggest that uh, what he meant was that, that when you know God, when you understand him, you are seeing the greatest, the holiest, the, the purest being in all of the universe. And knowing God is what we were made for. So to behold God is the reason why you and I woke up this morning. To behold God, to know God is the reason why you and I are breathing today, why we were able to have water to drink this morning, why we had running water in our houses, why the stove worked, why your refrigerator worked, why you were able to make eggs or, or oatmeal or cereal or whatever it took for you to get here. It's why your vehicle ran and got you on the road and got you here safely. It's why everything that it took in your life lined up so that you could be here in this place right now. And incidentally, that's true of every day of your life. The reason you wake up each day is so that you can have another day to behold your God. It's why we were made. And since it's what we were made for, sometimes the application of behold your God is actually sufficient. Um, many times our call to worship in a passage 
just says, Behold. And then it sets forth who God is. And that's because to behold God is to know Him, and to know Him is to love Him, and to love Him is to live for Him. And I would suggest that if you look at the passages that we have examined the last few Sundays prior to this one, the the, the reality is that John's gospel is very much a behold passage. Um, You don't see lots of moments for application necessarily, but what do you see? You see Jesus set before us. You see God presenting himself to us in the person of his son. And one of the the reasons why we know that sometimes the application is just behold is that that is our passage this morning. John simply says one word of application here for us. He says, behold. And specifically, he says who we should behold. He says, behold, the Lamb of God. And so John introduces Those who are listening to him, he introduces his own disciples to the incarnate Christ for the first time. And as he does it, he wants us to behold Jesus and to know what his life and what his ministry is going to be like. And so this morning, I want to just draw your attention to two things John shows us about Christ. He says Christ's ministry is a sacrificial ministry and Christ's ministry is a spiritual ministry. So those two themes of the passage this morning, sacrificial and spiritual ministry. This morning, we will see that Jesus came in the power of the Spirit to save us from our sins. Um, That is the most important thing that John could tell us about Jesus, and I dare say, of all the things this gospel tells us, this may be the greatest, certainly the most urgent message that we need, and certainly for this morning. So even if you got lost in the last few Sundays about the talk about the Trinity, or if your head started to spin when we talked about the baptism of John, this is the one that I would suggest is even more important, or I dare say at least as important. So first, John tells his listeners, he says, the ministry of Jesus is going to be a sacrificial ministry. He says this in verse 29. John is is there He's at the Jordan. He sees Jesus coming toward him. Here John is. He's he's administering the baptism of repentance to Israel. And and he's spoken the day before. The day before he was speaking about Jesus. He says, there is one coming whose sandals I'm not even worthy to untie. And then here he is today and he sees him. He sees the one he was talking about. He says, behold, the Lamb of God. He makes this declaration about Jesus. He says, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So think about this. He wants his, he wants his listeners to know. He, he wants to say, I'm identifying him. I can see him. I'm looking at him right now. It's as though he's pointing at him. And he's saying to his readers, behold him. Love him, know him, admire him, worship him, glorify him, trust him, live for him. There he is. He's the one. And he doesn't just say behold. He gives content to what he says. He, he puts meat on the bones of the behold command because he wants us to know what are we beholding. And there are two aspects to what he says we're beholding. He says behold the fact that Christ is the lamb. Behold the fact that Christ is the Lamb. The idea of the Lamb comes from the Passover. That's where we initially see it, at least. Um, We know 
In Israel's history, of course, Israel was in slavery. They were in Egypt, and we know that God poured out his judgments on Egypt, and he was leading his people out. But the last punishment that he brought upon Egypt, of course, was the death of the firstborn. And the only way that the, that the firstborn of any household was going to be protected or preserved was if the blood of a perfect spotless lamb was placed over the door of the house. And the, the blood over the door sent a message. The message was, this is a home that's under the protection of Almighty God. This is a home where sin is covered. This is a home where God's judgment would not fall upon us. And there he said, Israel should take the lamb for a guilt offering, offering it as a sacrifice. And then, of course, later that God institutes the, the, uh, the Day of Atonement. And the effect of the Day of Atonement, the effect of the sacrifices is that the people were forgiven. And if they had sinned, then the sin was lifted. And if they, if they sinned, it was as if they had never done the sin. That sin was placed on the lamb instead. And Jesus Here he is, he's walking towards John, and John says, this is the Passover lamb that never goes away. This is the Passover lamb whose sacrifice will always matter for us. This is a lamb that doesn't need to be re-sacrificed over and over again. He doesn't need to be killed week in and week out. The book of Hebrews tells us that he was sacrificed once for all, not to be repeated. And so John draws our attention to Jesus and he says, this is the lamb that you have been looking for. The second thing he says about this lamb is, he says, this is the lamb of, of, the lamb of God, Jesus, that takes away the sin of the world. Now, when he says that, there is a bit of presumption on the part of John. He presumes one little bit of information. He presumes this idea of sin. He presumes it. He says, he says, I know that you have sin. You know that I have sin. Each and every one of us have sin. And so John doesn't even question that there is sin in the world. It's here. It's in our world. It's in all of us. It's in our thoughts. It's in our deeds. It's in our actions. Sin is even there in the good things that we do, because even when we do good things, we have mixed motives, right? We, we, we do something good, and then we hope somebody sees it. Uh, even when we do a good deed, we, we're constantly looking for affirmation. Um, when we love another person, our motives are, are screwed up too, because we have something we want from that person. Um, even at our best, we're at our worst. And so John has this presumption here, and it's the right presumption. It's not a a false presumption. His presumption is sin is a huge problem for us. And he he presumes as he sees this lamb coming toward us that we've been able to solve all sorts of problems in this world. But the one problem we haven't been able to do anything about yet is the problem of sin. And so as human beings, our sin doesn't just ruin our lives and it doesn't just ruin our relationships with other people, but it separates us from God himself. Jeremiah chapter 5 says, Your sins have kept good from you. Your sins have kept good from you. Isaiah 59 says, Your iniquities have made a separation between you and and your God. And your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not hear. So this is not just a matter of us deserving to be punished. It's, It's the reality that we were made for God. 
And we don't get God because of our sin. Sin damages that. It's why we have trouble finding joy. It's why we have trouble finding satisfaction. It's why uh, the world's filled with so much sorrow. Sin is the most destructive, terrible, horrifying reality in all of the universe. It doesn't just keep us from fellowship with God, uh, which we were made for. We were made to know him, but it makes us liable to his judgment. He, does, he just, justifiably should destroy us for our sin because if he is a good judge, he has to punish sin. God is not a God who just winks at sin and just says, look, I'm going to let bygones be bygones and we're going to be fine, you and me. Now, something has to happen. We need blood to be spilled. Blood has to be spilled if we're going to be forgiven. So we need the Lamb of God to take away our sin. And you know, the whole Old Testament was built to convey this message to us that you will not be forgiven without a sacrifice. And so when John presents Jesus as the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, he is saying the perfect sacrifice that Israel has always needed is here now. Now John also says Jesus takes away the sin of the world. What he means by that is not that every single human being on the planet who has ever lived or ever will lived has had their sin taken care of. And so, therefore, everyone is forgiven. That's not the message that John is bringing here. That's called universalism. And we know universalism isn't true because in Scripture we have record of people who are not saved. And so he doesn't mean to teach universalism here. What he is teaching is that all people without distinction can be forgiven through Jesus. Um, This is not just something Jesus did for Israel. This is not just something that Jesus just did for those who have specific Jewish chromosomes in their blood or who have specifically identified with the people of Israel. Um, John is actually saying all people without distinction can have their sins taken away. You may be a Jew. You may be a Gentile. You may be wealthy. You may be poor, whoever you might be. God says, trust in Jesus and you will find him to be the lamb who takes away your sin. Isaiah says, come, let us reason together. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall become like wool. There's this Old Testament promise dangling over all the New Testament. This idea that as God As John gazes into the face of this man, he knows this is the one who's going to make all the things we've been anticipating for thousands of years actually come true now. And there is an application here. The application is, behold. That's John's application. He wants you to behold Jesus and he wants you to believe in Jesus. Behold him, see him, know him, love him, set your gaze on him daily, pray to him, believe in him, trust in him, hang all of your hope on him, put all of your confidence in him. Hinge your entire life on this man, John says. Now, John is going to talk more about what it means to believe in Jesus and to trust in him later. But at this point, I feel confident in saying, if for you, church's performance, if it's about being seen, if it's about making an appearance, if it's about doing your duty, but you don't have faith in Jesus, then you do not know the one thing Jesus came to do above all else, which was take away your sin.
That's what his life was all about. Every effort in Jesus' life, every healing he performed, every moment of his suffering, everything that he did was laser-focused on doing the Father's will and taking away the sins of those who believe in him. And if you don't know Jesus, then you don't have your sin taken away. And if your sin isn't taken away, then you're still guilty of everything you've ever done and every stray thought that you've ever had. But Jesus came to take away sin. He came to have a sacrificial ministry. It's the first thing John wants us to know about Jesus this morning. Second, through John, God shows us that Jesus lived out a spiritual ministry. So you see verse 32, John is saying how he identified the Messiah. And then he uses this statement. He says, he says I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove and it remained on him. And so the first point, you know, this morning told us the purpose of Jesus' life and ministry. Why did he come? He came to die for our sins. He came to perfect us uh, spiritually uh, with his own blood. But how, how is Jesus going to live the perfect life we need him to live? How is Jesus going to do the miracles he has to do? How is he going to keep trusting in the Father? How is he going to lay his life down for his people all while being a human? And the answer that John gives is the Spirit descended upon him. Now, I, you know, when I, when I was younger, I would have these questions. And one of the questions that I frequently asked, I don't remember if I asked my parents, if I asked myself, if I asked my pastor, I don't remember. But I had this question, I always wondered, why does the Holy Spirit descend upon Jesus? Right? If Jesus is already God, why... Is there any need for the Spirit to descend upon Jesus whatsoever? And I know that the answer to this takes us a little bit down a rabbit hole, but I think it's important for us to ask the question. It takes us to a deep place as far as understanding Jesus. But what I'm going to do this morning is give an answer, show you from the text, and then I'm going to encourage you to ask me any follow-up questions afterwards if you want to dive deeper into this. But I would wonder why... Why does the Spirit descend upon Jesus at his baptism? And I, I suppose the answer I decided upon was, well, uh, he just did it to show John. He just did it to show John who Jesus was, which one was the Messiah. And, and then that changed a bit when I started taking systematic theology at Reformed Theological Seminary because I took systematic theology too with Derek Thomas and I remember very, very clearly, this was maybe the most formative class that I, I took at RTS. And I just remember Derek Thomas shocking us as, as students with what he said about Jesus here. Because he said, in essence, Jesus could not do miracles without the Holy Spirit. Now, yeah, in a seminary classroom, hearing that, that's a very traumatizing thing. You go, what? No, no, no. We all know, everyone in this room knows that Jesus is God. So there is no need for the Spirit. Why would, why would he do this? Why would he need the Spirit? And the answer that Derek Thomas gave us was he said, he said he needed to truly be man. He couldn't just be Superman where he sort of puts on his glasses, acts like a normal man, but he's actually got all of these powers and every now and then he, he uses them. And when he said that, there was silence in the classroom. And I remember still afterward, there was quite a bit of buzzing during the break after the first section, because it was one of those classes that you go to for five or six hours a day. 
And every person in this room believed Jesus is God. So why would we say that he needs the spirit to do these miracles? What can the spirit possibly give Jesus if he already is God? And the reality is Jesus, Jesus Christ is God, but he was and is God incarnate. He's got flesh. He is a person. And during his earthly ministry, one of the things Paul is very emphatic about is that the son set aside his rights as God. He set aside his privileges. He set aside all these things that he has and is able to do as God. And he became an average person just like you and me. The one difference between Jesus and you and me in his earthly ministry and in his humanity was he was sinless. He was born of the Holy Spirit with the seed of Mary, so he was fully human. Yet he didn't have an earthly father and he was born without sin. He gained knowledge the same way you and I gained knowledge. He read books. He prayed. He found comfort the same way we do, by praying, by reading God's word. And he lived like one of us. He wasn't Superman. He wasn't a different kind of human. He wasn't like a a second class of of human being. He was one of us. And, And the question that you might ask is why? Why did he have to be like us in every respect? And Hebrews 2.17 gives us that answer. The author of Hebrews says, Therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God, to make propitiation for the sins of his people. And so the answer of scripture is that even though he had a right at every moment to minister through the divine power that was his as the son of God, he set aside that right. He set aside those privileges. Instead, he lived a life like you or me because we aren't God. And Christ set aside those privileges that he had as God in his earthly ministry. Now, you might say, well, but Jesus wasn't like us at all. I mean, what kind of a human being can turn water into wine? What kind of human being can walk on water? What kind of human being can heal a man born blind or make a lame man walk? And the answer is a human being who has the spirit of God. The ministry of Jesus is a spiritual ministry because all that he does is sustained and empowered by the spirit. So he lives as a man, not as God, even though he has a right to it at every moment. Because remember, what does Jesus say? He said, he said, I could call 12 legions of angels if I wanted to. He basically says at every moment I can exercise all my divine prerogatives and I could be living as God. And yet I don't. I set all that aside. I set aside all my priorities, all my rights, all my privileges. So we see at every moment he is exercising willpower not to do the things that he has a right to do. And so he doesn't. He lives a humble life. He lives a human life. He lives a real human life, not a pretend human life. He really became one of us. And he lived through the Spirit. You see this in the Bible. You see these references every now and then to how Jesus does what he does. For example... Matthew 4, 1, it says Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness. Matthew 12, 28, how does Jesus do miracles? How does Jesus cast out demons? He tells us in Matthew 12, 28, it is by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons. It's the Holy Spirit that enables them to cast out demons. Luke 4, 11, Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee. And so you see the gospel writers are consistent on this point 
The Spirit is the one who led Christ in his ministry. The Spirit is the one who enabled Christ to do miracles like casting out demons. The Spirit's the one who empowered Jesus. Even though he was and is very God of very God, what did he do? He lived a human life empowered by the Spirit. He willingly gave up recourse to his divine nature because he knew that what he needed most, in fact, what we needed most, was for him to be fully human for us. And this makes sense of how the apostles could do many of the same miracles Jesus did. How were the apostles able to do the same miracles Jesus did? Because they have the same spirit. The same spirit that made Jesus walk on water. Who else walked on water? Peter. Same spirit enables Peter to walk on water. The same spirit that allowed Jesus to raise up Lazarus also raised up Christ, we're told in Paul's writings. And the same spirit allowed Paul to raise up the little girl who had died. Or think of poor Eutychus who fell out of the window during the long, boring sermon. Uh, Eutychus falls on the ground and what happens? Paul goes out and raises him up by the Spirit. The same Spirit that enabled Jesus to heal the man who was lame from birth empowered the apostles to do the same thing in Acts chapter 3. Now, what good does this do us? Is this just theologian nerd kind of nerding out right now or something like that? Well, I hope not. I I think it has practical implications for us. I think it has implications for how we understand Jesus. First, I would say this. It matters that Jesus lived his life by the power of the Spirit because if you're a person who struggles to believe that God loves you, if you're a person who struggles to believe that there is something about you that at all that is um, redeemable, I want you to think of Christ and how he humbled himself. I want you to think of how he suffered as one of us and what he went through so that he actually could be your lamb, so that he could be your sacrifice. See, that's how important it was to him that your sin be taken care of, that he was willing to humble himself to the point of death, even death on the cross. It was the, ministry, it was the mission of Jesus to live as a man so that you could live forgiven. Peter tells us Christ also suffered that he might bring us to God. That is how important your communion with God is to Christ. Do you engage in communion with God? Do you pray? Do you you read his word? Do you spend time with him? Do you pray? Do you talk to him? Do you have communion with God? Because Jesus Christ laid his life down as a man so that you could have that. Or is that something that for you is a forgotten thing? It's 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 an accidental thing. It's something that you do sort of later in the day if you have time. How high of a priority is Christ's priority in your life? Second, remember this, the same spirit that was in Jesus and upon Jesus and that empowered Jesus lives in the heart of every believer. The same spirit that carried Jesus through his temptations lives within you. I think this is really important because I think many Christians feel deeply helpless in the Christian life. They think they'll, they feel powerless over sin And they fear there's never any hope. They're never going to have any real progress. They're never going to grow. They're always going to live a a stunted life as a Christian. And the message of of Scripture, the the message that I, I want you to go home with today is that you have the same spirit that enabled Jesus to do battle with Satan in the wilderness. You have the same spirit 
that he had that carried him through his entire earthly ministry. You are not helpless in the Christian life. I want you to get that out of your heads. Don't ever think of yourself as some sort of victim in the Christian life because you have the same spirit in you that enabled Jesus to live the way that he did. Think about that. Think about how differently you might live your day knowing who it is that is on your side and that is with you, that's comforting you, that's carrying you, that is helping you every step of the way if you're a believer. I want to close with two things. First is this. Jesus didn't come to make you a good citizen. He didn't come to give you a sense of fulfillment primarily, first and foremost. He didn't come to make you healthy. He didn't come to make you wealthy. He was the Lamb of God. He came to take away your sin. John sums up the life and ministry of Jesus, not by saying all of these other things that we may in our life and be tempted to sort of lean toward, that he didn't come for those things. He came to take away your sin. To him, the matter of your sin is the greatest matter that he could put his heart, his mind, and his attention on. The author of Hebrews told us that he had to be made like us. But why did he have to be made like us? To make propitiation for the sins of his people. That means to have our sins removed. There is nothing that removes our sin If it isn't him doing this. And so John's answer is, if he wasn't like this, he couldn't be the sacrifice and the priest. He couldn't be the priest drenched in his own blood, bearing our sin in his own body. He couldn't be that if he wasn't one of us. There was a great church father, Gregory of Nazianzus, and he said, that which he has not assumed, he has not healed. He had to be made like us. To save us, he needed to be us. If he wasn't truly man, then he couldn't be our priest. He couldn't be the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And so first, I want you to leave this place this morning remembering he came to take away your sin. That's Jesus' priority for you. Is it your priority? The second thing I want you to take home with you today is this. Seek to be filled with the Spirit. Acts 13.52 tells us the disciples were filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. Ephesians tells us be filled with the Spirit. I would also suggest to you that there was nobody in the world more joyful than Jesus. There was never anyone who had more joy. That doesn't mean that he didn't have sorrow. In fact, Jesus shows us that joy and sorrow can exist together in the same person. You can be in sorrowful circumstances and be joyful. So what does Acts 13.52 says? It says the disciples were filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. Ephesians says be filled with the Spirit. And so what I want you to, to encourage you with today, I do want to give you an application. I do want to give you an action point. And it's this. Read God's Word. Pray God's Word. Sing God's Word. Ask God to fill you with his word because as he does that, he's filling you with his spirit. How can you have the sort of infectious joy that carried Jesus through his life? Be filled with the spirit. Paul prayed for the Romans to be filled with all joy and peace in believing so that by the power of the Holy Spirit, you may abound in hope. 
He has no anticipation of joy or peace in believing in our lives without the Holy Spirit. I fear that many Christians do try to find joy and peace and hope in their lives apart from God. And sometimes it can work for a little while. But look at the scripture. How are you going to have the same joy and peace and hope? The same way the Romans had joy and peace and hope. The same way the apostles, even in prison, had joy and peace and hope. The same way that Jesus lived with joy and peace and hope. By the power of the Holy Spirit. Let's pray. Lord, we confess that we are full of sin. That we don't love you as we should. That we don't love others as we should. That our sin has made a separation between us and you. And we confess that our sin is deep and grievous. We confess that we need your Son, the Savior, the Mediator. And we also confess that we don't call upon your spirit the way we should. And so we ask that you would empower each and every saint here in this room, each person who trusts in Christ, help us to believe the gospel, to say yes to your son. Make us a people who are filled by your spirit and who fully rest in Jesus Christ, the lamb who takes away the sin of the world, in whose name we pray this morning. Amen.